From New York, this is Democracy Now! If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me, and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. Donald Trump is preparing to surrender today in Miami to become the first president ever to be arraigned on federal charges. As authorities beef up security, we'll look at how Trump and his supporters have responded to the charges with increasingly violent rhetoric about war and insurrection. Then 60 years ago this week, President John F. Kennedy made history by calling for peace with the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. Nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. And freedom of the press is under attack in Guatemala ahead of this month's general election. Zamora and I am the son of imprisoned Guatemalan journalist Jose Ruben Zamora, who has been facing political persecution from the Yamate administration simply for denouncing corruption and doing journalism. Because in Guatemala, doing journalism is a crime. Jose Ruben Zamora faces 40 years in prison. We'll speak to his son. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump surrendering to federal authorities in Miami, Florida today to face charges for retaining and mishandling classified documents, including top-secret information about U.S. nuclear weapons. In recent days, Trump and many of his supporters have condemned the charges using inflammatory language. Ahead of Trump's arraignment, Miami Police Chief Manny Morales said law enforcement officials are preparing for the possibility of violence by far-right extremists outside Miami's federal courthouse. Make no mistake about it, we're taking this, uh, this event extremely serious. We know that there is a potential of things uh, taking a turn for the worst, but that's not the Miami way. Trump, who's currently the frontrunner for the Republican Party's 2024 presidential nominations, planning to fly to his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, after his Florida arraignment to deliver remarks this evening. After headlines, we'll have the latest on the federal indictment against Trump. We'll speak with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, expert on fascism and authoritarianism. In Ukraine, at least 10 people were killed, more than two dozen injured overnight as Russia launched a massive missile attack on the central city of Kriviri. Victims included residents of a partially collapsed five-story apartment building where rescue crews said people could still be trapped under rubble. Ukraine's military, meanwhile, says it's retaken seven settlements in the Donetsk and Zaporizhia regions in a counteroffensive over the past week. NATO's opened its largest-ever aerial war games in Germany. 
The military alliance says some 10,000 personnel from 25 countries are taking part in drills involving 250 warplanes. Non-NATO nations, Japan and Sweden, are participating. The war games opened as French President Emmanuel Macron welcomed German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Polish President Duda to Paris, where the three discussed aid to Ukraine. Meanwhile, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg delayed Monday's planned visit with President Joe Biden by a day after Biden had emergency surgery, uh, root canal. On Saturday, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a surprise visit to Kyiv, where he met President President Volodymyr Zelensky and addressed Ukraine's parliament. Trudeau pledged a half billion dollars in new military aid and said he would support Ukraine's bid to join NATO during the alliance's July summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. Canada and many others are very supportive of uh, Ukraine joining NATO when the conditions allow. Um, what that exactly looks like is uh, a conversation that we're continuing to have between now and Vilnius, but uh, I'm very uh, Vilnius, but I'm uh, very positive about it. The world's nuclear powers spent nearly $44 billion on weapons of mass destruction last year, or more than $157,000 per minute, with the United States accounting for more nuclear weapons spending than all other nations combined. That's the finding of a new report by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. The Nobel Peace Prize-winning group found worldwide spending on nuclear weapons rose last year for the third consecutive year. Iran's supreme leader has said he's open to reviving the landmark 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from under President Trump in 2018. On Sunday, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei said there was nothing wrong with pursuing a revival of the agreement as long as Iran can keep its nuclear infrastructure intact. Khamenei spoke after touring an exhibition of Iran's nuclear industry in Tehran. Based upon Islamic ideals, we do not want nuclear weapons. But if this wasn't the case, they would not be able to prevent us from doing so, just like they could not prevent our nuclear progress so far. Human rights groups warn Iran is executing prisoners at its fastest pace in nearly a decade. Over the weekend, at least five prisoners were hanged in Iran. This follows 282 executions carried out in May, nearly double the number recorded during the same time last year. The use of capital punishment in Iran has surged in the months after historic massive protests took to the streets following the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in police custody last September. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the U.N. reports more than 45 people People were killed after an attack on a camp for internally displaced communities. The camp, located near a U.N. peacekeeping site in the Jugu territory, was reportedly infiltrated by fighters of a coalition of armed groups Sunday, who carried out the massacre through the early hours of Monday. The victims were buried in a mass grave. The U.N. called the attack a serious violation of international humanitarian law. UNESCO says the United States will rejoin the United Nations Cultural and Scientific Agency and will pay more than $600 million in back dues. In 2017, the Trump administration announced it would withdraw the U.S. from UNESCO, citing what it called anti-Israel bias. Israel followed suit immediately after. Both the U.S. and Israel stopped paying member dues in 2011 after Palestine joined UNESCO. In climate news, tens of thousands of dead fish have washed ashore across multiple beaches along the Texas Gulf Coast after they were starved of oxygen due to abnormally warm ocean temperatures. In 2019, the U.N. warned the climate crisis will increasingly lead to massive die-offs of marine life as warm water holds far less oxygen than colder water. 
This comes as more than 430 wildfires continue to burn across Canada, with thousands of people in Alberta, British Columbia and Quebec still under evacuation orders. Quebec's Minister of Public Security said the blazes will likely last all summer, with more air quality alerts likely across the northern U.S. and Canada. Last Wednesday, is thick dark smoke from Canada's fires blanketed New York City. Over 300 people were seen at hospitals due to symptoms of asthma, nearly double the number seen the day before the smoke arrived. The highest rate of emergencies were reported in predominantly low-income Black and Latinx neighborhoods. In Montana, a landmark climate trial led by 16 children and young adults began Monday in the capital, Helena. The lawsuit, which is the first of its kind to go to trial in the U.S., was filed in 2020 by plaintiffs between the ages of 5 and 22. They accuse the state of Montana of violating their constitutional rights as a push pro-fossil fuel policies that devastated the environment and severely impacted their health. This is Julia Olson, executive director of Our Children's Trust, the nonprofit law firm representing the young plaintiffs. Children need lawyers and they need advocates because our system of law does not prioritize the needs of the youngest among us. And when it comes to climate crisis, human laws are not paying attention to the laws of nature and what scientists say is necessary to protect our children and all future generations. Earlier this month, a judge cleared the way for a children's climate case against the United States government to begin in a federal court in Oregon after Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts blocked the lawsuit in 2018. J.P. Morgan Chase has agreed to pay $290 million to settle a lawsuit brought by survivors of convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, who said the bank ignored warnings about Epstein's sexual abuses for years because he was bringing in wealthy clients. J.P. Morgan Chase still faces a separate lawsuit brought by the U.S. Virgin Islands, where the attorney general's office said in a statement it'll proceed with its enforcement action to, quote, prevent the bank from assisting and profiting from human trafficking in the future future, unquote. And in Pennsylvania, authorities have recovered the body of a tanker truck driver who died after he lost control of his rig and crashed Sunday morning, triggering a fire that collapsed an overpass on Interstate 95 in Philadelphia. The disaster has halted traffic in both directions along the main East Coast artery connecting Florida to Maine. On Monday, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro said officials would have a timeline for its reconstruction once engineers complete a review in the coming days. With regards to the complete rebuild of I-95 roadway, we expect that to take some number of months. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, authorities in Miami are ramping up security near the federal courthouse where President Donald Trump will surrender today to face charges for retaining and mishandling classified documents, including top secret information about U.S. nuclear weapons. On Friday, the Justice Department unsealed a historic 37-count indictment against Trump, who's running for the White House again. In recent days, Trump and many of his supporters have condemned the charges using inflammatory language. Andy Biggs, a far-right member of Congress from Arizona, wrote on social media, quote, we've now reached a war phase, an eye for an eye. Louisiana Republican Congressman Clay Higgins wrote a cryptic tweet that many viewed as a call for insurrection. 
former Arizona Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake directly threatened violence. I have a message tonight for Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and Joe Biden and the guys back there in the fake news media. You should listen up as well. This one's for you. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. comments were widely criticized. Ruben Gallego, a Democrat running for Senate in Arizona, responded by saying, quote, this language isn't just hyperbole. It's dangerous and it threatens the very core of our democracy, unquote. Donald Trump has repeatedly attacked special counsel Jack Smith, calling him a deranged lunatic and a thug. On Saturday, Trump spoke in Columbus, Georgia, about what he called the final battle. Now the Marxist left is once again using the same corrupt DOJ and the same corrupt FBI and the attorney general and the local district attorneys to interfere in our elections at a level that our country and few countries have ever seen before. They're cheating, they're crooked, they're corrupt. These criminals cannot be rewarded. They must be defeated. You have to defeat them. We're joined now by Ruth Ben-Ghiat an expert on fascism and authoritarianism, author of Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She also publishes the newsletter Lucid on threats to democracy. Professor Ben-Ghiat, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. So tomorrow we'll spend more time after the arraignment talking about all of the counts. But today we're focusing on the threats, on the violent threats. Can you respond? Yes. Yeah, so this could be seen as a this uh, reaction to Trump's indictment uh, and the appearance in Miami. It could be seen by his most fanatic uh, followers as a kind of um, spark for a second wave of the insurrection. That's certainly the tone of uh, Carrie Lake and Clay Higgins and, and these other uh, these other MAGA extremists. But Trump has been preparing this in two ways for many years. First of all, uh, since 2015, he used his rallies. So back, we're talking, you know, seven, eight years now. He used his rallies as radicalization sites. And over and over, he told uh, his supporters at these rallies that violence was a good way to solve conflict. Um, how many times do you say, oh, you know, in the good old days, we used to be able to punch people and nothing happened. So that that discourse of violence, which encouraged January 6th, is part of this. The other is his victim cult. So this won't be a surrender for MAGA extremists. This will be an act of victimization. And all strongmen since Mussolini say they're victims. And this is very compelling to their followers because they feel protective of him. And, and this is part of their leader cult. And January 6th, of course, was he summoned the faithful to help him in his time of distress. So that narrative is continuing now. 
Well, but Professor, how do you account for the how few Republicans uh, are standing up to this situation? Uh, of course, Mitt Romney uh, is one of the few, but most are not only lining up behind Trump, but those who are candidates are promising to pardon him if they're elected. This is because um, I see the GOP as a scholar of authoritarianism. It is an autocratic party operating inside a democracy, and it is a party enthralled to a cult leader. And Donald Trump, uh, I've been studying cult leaders for you know 100 years worth of them. He has all the signs. Um, he is not a conventional politician of either the Democratic or Republican, you know, old school. He is a cult leader. And the, and the GOP has long been, uh, you know, submissive to him. He put them under an authoritarian discipline. And then he made them complicit. And this is what corrupt, violent authoritarians do. He, they make you part of their crimes. And so the GOP is in damage control mode. And, you know, there's fear, there's fanaticism. Um, and they don't see a, a way to break away because they're cowards, because or they're, they've bought into this uh, this war, this battle uh, that he's waging. And you said that if Trump gets back into power, he'll never leave. Uh, what's at stake uh, in this upcoming election? And also, how do you how do you place him in, in the context of growing right wing movements in the industrialized West? Yeah, I said that he would never leave if he gets back in because he's he's saying that the other day when he said to his followers, I'll never leave. On the one hand, he was uh, this was part of his cult leader uh, devotional um, kind of homily to them where he says, I love you. I'll always be there for you. But it's also telling them and he always says what he's going to do ahead of time that if he gets back into power, he will not leave. And he's already ta talked about, you know, massive purges. Um, and he's got a whole plan that he will pick up and finish the job of wrecking democracy that he couldn't finish before. Professor Ben-Ghiat, I also want to ask you about the death of Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, which is declared a national day of mourning for Wednesday. <laughs> The billionaire media tycoon served four terms as prime minister of Italy, where he leveraged his unrivaled influence over public opinion in Italy, controlling the newspapers, magazines, three major TV channels. Throughout his career, Berlusconi faced multiple um, charges uh, of uh, of money laundering, or at least of corruption, uh, criminal charges, including abuse of office, bribery, paying for sex with an underage girl. Most of the charges ended in dismissals after Berlusconi's government passed laws shielding him from prosecution. But a tax fraud conviction in 2013 barred him from public office for six years. Can you talk about what Berlusconi represented? There's lots of lessons for uh, uh, us today uh, in the Berlusconi era. Two things I'll mention. Berlusconi set off the whole normalization of the far right. Um, without him, it would have been a lot uh, slower and harder. In 1994, it was just a brief government, but he brought neo-fascists into the government and made a center-right coalition with the xenophobic Northern League, now they're called the League, and this neo-fascist party. So he broke a taboo. 
And during his other two governments in the in the 2000s, it, the, the culture of neo-fascism, the culture of fascism itself, which he repeatedly whitewashed, he said to uh, some British journalists, including J Boris Johnson was one of them back in 2003, that Mussolini never killed anyone. So what we see today with the revival of neo-fascism and uh, somebody like Giorgio Meloni, the prime minister, who says, oh, I'm a conservative, that whitewashing comes straight out of Berlusconi. And by the way, he gave her uh, her start. The other lesson is prosecution matters. Berlusconi was so able, he, as, you, as you said, he passed, he got the uh, parliament to pass laws if he, if he was accused of bribery, he got Parliament to pass a law saying that bribery wasn't an offense you could be jailed for. And he did this over and over again, or he ran out the clock, very similar uh, uh, to, to Trump. But finally, uh, two years after he left office, he was convicted. And he didn't go to jail because of his age. But it was that conviction and being banned from politics that finally deflated his personality cult and made his party, which he'd created, into a minor force in politics. So prosecution sends a message that no one is above the law. I wanted to ask you about how the media would uh, should deal with a figure such as Donald Trump. On the one hand, uh, uh, we have to cover some of the uh, the major events that happened related to him. On the other hand, the the saturation coverage also provides him more and more free publicity and a platform. Uh, what's the proper balance that uh, journalists and the media should uh, should exercise in your view? Yeah, that's the that's been the question since 2016. Uh, however, after you know January 6, uh, I think that uh, people who didn't see the danger before perhaps see it now, and it's been a little disheartening that uh, some in the media have uh, returned to the default position of treating him as a conventional candidate. Of course, there was the disastrous uh, CNN town hall. Uh, where, you know, people were not allowed to criticize, they were only supposed to applaud. And that actually recreated an authoritarian plateau. It was perfect for him. You know, other people, uh, they don't, for example, they don't retweet uh, not only Trump, but these other uh, MAGA extremists, because that, uh, that extra engagement uh, is figured into algorithms that promote these people. You can screenshot them. But there is, we do need to cover it, and I speak about it all the time because we can't close our eyes to this danger. Every society that's had um, a serious threats to democracy has gone into it with some denial, with some idea that it can't happen here, including Germany in the early 30s, which was one of the most advanced scientific, graphic design, uh, cultural uh, societies in the world. And so it's important to cover it, to not shy away from denouncing it, but also to frame it for what it really is. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, we want to thank you for being with us, expert on fascism and authoritarianism, author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. When we come back, we'll continue looking at strongmen, an authoritarian president in Guatemala, Giamate, um, where a publisher— Jose Rubin Zamora faces 40 years in jail. But first, 60 years ago, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech about calling for peace between the Soviet Union and the United States. Stay with us.
Youth Lagoon. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Sixty years ago this week, President John F. Kennedy gave a historic speech at the height of the Cold War, calling for peace and a reevaluation of relations with the Soviet Union. Just weeks after Kennedy's speech, Washington and Moscow signed the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. This is part of what President Kennedy said June 10, 1963, during a commencement address at American University in Washington, D.C. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age where great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age where a single nuclear weapon contains almost 10 times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied Air Forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and a generation yet unborn. Today, the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need them is essential to the keeping of peace. But surely the acquisition of such idle stockpiles, which can only destroy and never create, is not the only, much less the most efficient, means of assuring peace. 
I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace or world law or world disarmament, and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. I hope they do. I believe we can help them do it. But I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitudes as individuals and as a nation, for our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward, by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace, towards the Soviet Union, towards the course of the Cold War, and towards freedom and peace here at home. First, examine our attitude towards peace itself. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. And second, let us re-examine re our attitude towards the Soviet Union. No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union in the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and families were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland a loss equivalent to the destruction of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries will be the primary target. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. And even in the Cold War, which brings burdens and dangers to so many countries, including this nation's closest allies, our two countries bear the heaviest burdens. For we are both devoting massive sums of money to weapons that could be better devoted to combat ignorance, poverty, and disease. We are both caught up in a vicious and dangerous cycle with suspicion on one side, breeding suspicion on the other, and new weapons begetting counter-weapons. In short, both the United States and its allies, and the Soviet Union and its allies, 
have a mutually deep interest in a just and genuine peace and in holding the arms race. Agreements to this end are in the interests of the Soviet Union as well as ours. And even the most hostile nations can be relied upon to accept and keep those treaty obligations and only those treaty obligations which are in their own interest. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. Third, let us re-examine our attitude towards the Cold War, remembering we're not engaged in a debate, seeking to pile up debating points. We are not here distributing blame or pointing the finger of judgment. We must deal with the world as it is, and not as it might have been, had the history of the last 18 years been different. We must therefore persevere in the search for peace in the hope that constructive changes within the communist bloc might bring within reach solutions which now seem beyond us. We must conduct our affairs in such a way that it becomes in the communist interest to agree on a genuine peace. And above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. That was President John F. Kennedy, June 10, 1963, just weeks after his speech Washington and Moscow signed the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Kennedy would be assassinated on November 22, 1963, less than six months later. Joining us now is Katrina Vanden Heuvel, publisher of The Nation magazine, columnist for The Washington Post. Her new piece for Responsible Statecraft headlined, What Kind of Peace Do We Seek? At 60, JFK's speech never gets old first. Katrina, congratulations on receiving the Marcus Raskin Marcus. Award for Civic and Intellectual Courage. Thank you. Mark was someone who could not condone the madness of the arms race, which he was present at the creation of. Uh, Katrina, I'd like to ask you about this extraordinary speech. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev called it the greatest speech by a U.S. president since uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The And the timeliness of it, uh, given the situation we're facing now, of course, then the United States was in a Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, but uh, now it's the Russian Federation, no longer communist, now a, a, an openly capitalist. We still have a similar confrontation. You know, what interests me, Juan, is when you listen to the speech, first of all, many people in this country would think President John F. Kennedy was a subversive. I'm not sure he'd be permitted on TV or some of our TV 
He might be demonized or slurred. Peace has become a subversive word in these last decades, and that is a tragedy. He, there's reference to 18 years before as he gives his speech, and that's a reference to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and also the charged environment coming off of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where millions of Americans did feel hostage to the nuclear arms race. That has dimmed, in a sense. I mean, Amy, you remember, Juan, perhaps a million people in Central Park in June 1982 uh, fighting for a freeze of the intermediate nuclear range missiles. But with the waning of fear, there's been a normalization in talk about using tactical nuclear weapons. And this is so dangerous. I think what President Kennedy's speech does, and you just did an extraordinary public service, in retrieving American history, there are parts so many don't know, and that speech is vital for a roadmap, a guide, a primer for today, as I write in the responsible statecraft piece, the Biden administration could certainly take a page because they are so far away from this thinking in terms of the belief that military might is what is needed to resolve the critical needs of our country and the world at this time. And could you talk about uh, Norman Cousins, who was a, a an anti-nuclear and peace activist who had enormous influence on this uh, on this speech? Uh, the uh, the historians have said that Kennedy did not at, at all alert either the CIA or the Joint Chiefs of Staff that he was about to make this speech. Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs, that he couldn't rely on the military. And in that context, he brought together uh, not only Norman Cousins, and that's an interesting side story because in previous administrations over time, people have been brought in as mediators, not officials, but uh, for example, in negotiating with Cuba years before, Norman Cousins was a very eminent editor of the Saturday Evening Post, and he also had relations with Kennedy. And Kennedy trusted him to speak to Khrushchev. And I think that kind of negotiation can be valuable when the officials are frozen. Uh, you know, where is John Kerry is in the administration, but where is John Kerry perhaps negotiating, talking behind the scenes? I think we want more transparency in our foreign policy, but at the same time, negotiations often demand a level of behind the scenes. So, Katrina, we're speaking now as um, the largest NATO air deployment exercise in its history is going on in Germany with over 10,000 participants, 250 aircraft from 25 nations. Japan and Sweden, not um, NATO allies, are also participating on this. Uh, in this. Can you talk about the significance of this at this time and what you feel needs to happen? Well, imagine at this juncture where there could be a track toward escalating negotiations, talk. Instead, we have, as you noted, the largest air exercise, NATO air exercise in history. And I think that is a measure of the mindset that President Kennedy warned of, the militarization of the mindset. Now, I condemn the war, the brutal war, 
in addition to what we're witnessing with NATO air exercises, Amy, one, we are witnessing the, probably the greatest environmental disaster in the modern history of Ukraine with the breach of the uh, dam. So there are costs that demand attention, and instead we're getting all these military investors continuing to hawk, pedal their wares. And as President Kennedy said, this is not addressing the poverty, the disasters, the pandemics, the climate. This is addressing more and more wealth, money going to the arms race. And that is a tragedy and one that President Kennedy alludes to in his uh, great speech. And Katrina, could you talk about how the speech uh, then uh, subsequently led to a partial nuclear test ban treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union? Well, I mean, the idea of words leading to deeds was a part of the Cold War history, ironically. What we've witnessed in these last years, decades, is the rollback of the infrastructure of arms control. Now, some people are more abolitionist. But the prudentialists, let's say, are witnessing more and more nuclear stockpiles. I believe they've nuclear stockpiles, according to a Swedish institute last month, have grown. And what has not grown are the negotiations needed to curb the ter- dangerous, perilous menace. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved its doomsday clock forward to alert people. But we seem to be sleepwalking. Or instead of sleepwalking, It's all about the new lists of weapons. So, you know, I don't agree with Ambassador Michael McFaul on much, I'll tell you. But um, Sam Sharap, in a very good piece in Foreign Affairs, noted that there is like 300 military people in a commission are tasked with military equipment purchases. There's one, there's no conflict diplomatic figure tasked at this moment to trying to find a dual-track way to end this war, which is ravaging Ukraine and ravaging Russia. And those who are serving are the poor, the provincial men, their men, and the elites, which is what this dangerous figure, Prigozhin, is trying to make hay out of, are doing pretty well, many of the elites. So this is a very difficult time internally In addition to what's happening in this country where the Russophobia uh, is afflicting the mindset of cancel, you know, cancel Dostoevsky, cancel Chekhov. I mean, I think this is madness. And President Kennedy's words are those of a sober person, a president. I mean, if he gave those that speech on the floor of the Capitol, he'd be run off which is a measure of what we need to do to return to sanity and restraint and a diplomatic when, you know, and war should be the very, very, very last resort, which is not the case. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, we thank you so much for being with us, publisher of The Nation magazine, columnist for The Washington Post. Her new piece for Responsible Statecraft, we'll link to it. What kind of peace do we seek? At 60, JFK's speech never gets old. Coming up, we speak to the son of an internationally renowned Guatemalan journalist, Jose Ruben Zamora, who's been jailed for nearly a year. This week, he faces up to 40 years in prison at his sentencing. Stay with us. Don't wash the cast iron skillet. 
Don't drink and drive you Spill it Don't ask too many questions Or you'll never get to sleep There's a hole inside you Spill it Shower up and shave Put flowers on the grave And ask the Lord to save your soul Although you know it's too late Was it 27 times or was it 29? I heard the blade broke off inside the man and he took a while to die. How did you get so low? Seems like just a week ago we were 10 and 12 years old. He was sweet and soft, shot away from the inside fastballs and died doing life without parole Don't watch the cast iron skillet That dog bites my kid I'll kill it Cast Iron Skillet by Jason Isbell and the 400 unit. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We look now at how the internationally renowned Guatemalan journalist, José Ruben Zamora, faces 40 years in prison at his verdict and sentencing hearing Wednesday in Guatemala City, after he was arrested in what press freedom and human rights groups say are trumped-up money laundering charges. Zamora is the founder and president of the independent investigative Guatemalan newspaper El Periodico and for decades has reported on government corruption. International rights groups and the Guatemalan Association of Journalists say the case against him is politically motivated. This is Jose Rubén Zamora speaking after his arrest last July. He's been in prison since. They chased me and my children in the streets in a very dangerous way. My family had to go into exile. My home was illegally raided, but they haven't gone as far as now with them formally arresting me. I don't know how long the process will take. This is a narco-klepto dictatorship. Four years ago, our apparent democracy was transformed, electing a president that is a thief who has been assaulting us for the past four years. Us, as Guatemalans, we don't have the capacity to defend ourselves. After Zamora's detention, El Periódico was forced to stop publication of its print edition. The newspaper then shuttered its online version, May 15th, due to what the paper called judicial and financial harassment from the right-wing government of the Guatemalan president, Alejandro Giamate. It signed off with a single headline in Spanish that translated to, We Say No to Power, 1996 to 2023. It had been publishing for 27 years. Rights group say Zamora has not received a fair trial under Guatemala's Attorney General Maria Consuelo Porras, who is on a U.S. State Department list of corrupt and undemocratic actors. For more on Jose Ruben Zamora and the sentencing tomorrow, we're joined in Miami by his son, Jose Carlos Zamora, who is also a journalist. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, though, under these very difficult circumstances. Tell us what happened to your father and what this sentencing uh, means tomorrow in Guatemala City. 
Hi, Amy. Good morning, and good morning, Juan, and thank you for, for having me and for paying attention to what's happening in Guatemala. Uh, well, what happened is uh, my father has over a 30-year trajectory in doing investigative journalism in Guatemala. Uh, at El Periódico with his team, he has been doing it for 26 years, uh, specifically in the government of uh, Alejandro Yamatei. Uh, in the first 144 weeks of the administration, uh, he and his team published 144 stories uh, and investigations into corruption in, uh, about uh, Yamatei. This led to, to this per political persecution. Um, they, uh, there, in Guatemala, there is a democratic facade, uh, but the executive controls the judiciary. And they are using criminal law to persecute anybody who they consider a critical voice. Uh, they, the Yamatei administration has been uh, systematically attacking all democratic institutions uh, and persecuting uh, anybody who had anything to do with fighting corruption, including uh, the highest profile judges, prosecutors, activists, and in the case of my father, journalists. Um, as you were saying, it's incredible that uh, the, the public ministry uh, requested a 40-year sentence, which is uh, historically uh, there, there hasn't been such a, um, a, a, a request for these types of, of cases. Uh, so it's it's really shameful and ridiculous, and, and it really shows clearly uh, the, that it's a political persecution. Uh, and when they arrested him and, and processed him, and, and with this sentence, what they want to send is a very clear message to all journalists in Guatemala that in the country, doing journalism is a crime. And Jose Carlos, could you talk, to, uh, for those who are not familiar with uh, the most recent history in Guatemala after the peace accords, and it looked like Central America was heading in a in a better direction, and even uh, the perpetrators of some of the genocide were were tried. What has happened in recent years that allow this resurgence of this uh, uh, this right wing government uh, in uh, in your country? Well, we since '85 we started our new democratic era. Uh, we had the, the opportunity to start with a clean slate, but every four years we, we change government and every government has been very corrupt. But in the last 10 years, uh, we had, there was a big effort to fight uh, corruption and um, it was working. Uh, and when they saw these different groups that are involved in corruption saw that it was working, they all became allies, dismantled that effort. Uh, and not only they, they dismantled it, but they started persecuting anybody who was involved in fighting corruption. And, and that's exactly what is happening now. And what you see is not only that they are persecuting anybody who was involved in fighting corruption, but now people who were uh, involved in, in the highest profile corruption cases and also human rights abuses uh, during the war, they are being let free. So you see um, a regression and, and, and a lot of repression. Uh, this, this administration, the Yamatei administration, has not only been corrupt, but extremely repressive. Uh, there's uh, never been, since, uh, since 1985, there have never been so many Guatemalans in, in exile uh, fleeing political persecution, from judges to prosecutors to journalists. Uh, the official number is around 40, but it's estimated that it's around 80 people who are uh, 
left the country because they were being politically persecuted, and the ones that didn't leave are in prison and facing these ridiculous, uh, really, uh, processes. Like in the case of my father, uh, not only was his case fabricated, um, but he has been uh, made go through a process that has a, a, been a, a, an abs absolute, a total uh, violation of due process. Uh, and now he's facing this, uh, this sentence. Uh, we really expect him um, to be convicted uh, because the system is uh, corrupt. And really what we're seeing is that the, the government of Alejandro Yamatei has him as a hostage. If you can talk, Jose Carlos Zamora, about the past threats against your father, there's been assassination threats, death threats, um, kidnapping threats. But what it means that they bring charges of money laundering against him now. And um, ultimately, what we're talking about is this coming together of the elite and the governing elite, Yamate, uh, the Pacto de Corruptos, I think they are referred to uh, in Guatemala. Yes, correct. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, the the use of the law to persecute um, critical voices and journalists and, and opposition. It's uh, really damaging to democracy and to the country, and that's what we're seeing. Uh, before, when it came uh, to journalists, and, and for example, what you were mentioning about my father. Throughout his 30-year career, uh, he has been uh, shot at, uh, kidnapped. The, the entire family has been attacked and kidnapped. Uh, he has been, uh, they attempted to assassinate him in 2008. Uh, there's been car bombs. Uh, uh, ev everything you can imagine has, has happened. But what we see is an, an evolution in, in how the, the government has become more sophisticated in, in attacking journalists. And this also comes from all other repressive regimes. They, they copy each other from the Philippines to Venezuela to Nicaragua to Guatemala. Before, they would do two things. Attack a journalist's credibility uh, because they know that's the only asset a journalist has. And from the other side, they would do these death threats and assassination attempts. Uh, but then they discover that Killing journalists com comes at a very high price. So when you control the law and the judiciary, it's much simpler to use the law to persecute uh, anybody who you consider uh, opposition. Uh, and that's what they are doing. In case of the They started first with civil law, with these slaps, uh, slaps lawsuits, but then they saw an even more efficient tool in, in criminal law because that allows them to... Um, have these trumped-up charges on on money laundering, uh, and that allows them to 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 have an arrest warrant uh, to arrest a journalist and place him in jail, uh, and um, it really changes everything. and And it allows them to to say under this democratic facade that it's not uh, about journalism, that it's not about press freedom, but it's about uh, a, a criminal. So. It's, uh, it allows them to continue to, to attack the credibility of a journalist, but it also allows them to neutralize him if you put them in prison. So it's, uh, and it's a very clear message to all other journalists in the country that they can come after anybody who continues to denounce corruption. And Jose Carlos, how is your father doing in prison? Where is he being held? What's, what are his, the conditions of his detention? And have you spoken to him recently? 
Uh, he's in a, a, a prison that is a military base. Uh, he, uh, he He's healthy, he's in good spirits, uh, but he's been uh, uh, 319 days in prison today uh, in what pretty much is uh, solitary confinement. So he spends uh, 23 hours a day in solitary in a very small uh, uh, cell that is in very bad shape. So the conditions aren't very good because uh, the government really had three objectives when, when they arrested him. One was to, to punish him directly. Uh, he's, uh, he's a pain for them. Uh, he has denounced uh, all of their corrupt acts. So they really wanted to punish him directly, and that's why they have him in such bad conditions in this tiny cell. The second was to shut down the newspaper, which they finally managed to do uh, 11 months later. Uh, because they also started harassing and attacking advertisers. And the third point was to send this really clear message to all journalists in the country that in Guatemala, doing journalism is a crime. Jose Carlos, we just have about a minute, but what can the Biden administration do? I mean, you have these deals being made, especially with Northern Triangle countries, uh, where the U.S. shores them up to stop immigration. Can you talk about that? I think what there's, there's need to be two things. One is uh, harder sanctions uh, that, that really uh, have a teeth, right? Like, uh, that's one thing. But from the other side, they should stop uh, having these collaborations with them and, and um, just with the focus on migration because it's very nearsighted. Uh, because the, the true and the root cause of migration is corruption. It's uh, corruption and repression and, and violence. And that's really what's driving migration. And until that root cause isn't addressed, people won't stop migrating. So you definitely can fund uh, a military police uh, that tries to stop people south of the border. But unless uh, these root causes are addressed, uh, people won't stop coming to the U.S. Jose Carlos Moro, we thank you so much for being with us. Guatemalan journalist based in Miami, the son of the internationally renowned Guatemalan journalist Jose Ruben Zumora, who faces 40 years in prison at his sentencing on Wednesday after being jailed for nearly a year on what press freedom and human rights groups say are trumped up money laundering charges as political retaliation over exposés of government corruption in Guatemala. Jose Ruben Zamora is 66 years old and will report on what happens tomorrow in the courtroom in Guatemala City. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadora, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nogueira, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.